This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. Well, this morning we are starting a new series in the book of Jonah. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn there. If you need a Bible, you can go ahead and shoot your hand up in the air. Uh, we have some in the back um, who would love to, love to get that. So just get your hand up in the air. Caleb's running back to get them. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we like to say we want everyone to make sure they have a copy of God's Word in front of them because we're going to hear some things that are so good this morning. I'll make sure you know that I'm not making them up. When you get your Bible, uh, you're going to look for jo- the book of Jonah in the table of contents because it's a really small book. And so if you try to find it, you'll be paging through it for, for a minute. Uh, so don't feel bad looking up, it up in the table of contents. It is a short book. But while a short book, the story of Jonah is, is actually one of the more well-known stories in the Bible. Jonah is the guy who gets swallowed by a big fish, right? I mean, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you've probably heard something about that story. I think about you know, that and what that must have been like for Jonah. You know, he goes to a party and people are kind of sharing their life experiences and you know, he's sitting there just kind of chuckling to himself. Oh, you've been to Alaska. That's so nice. I spent three days in the belly of a whale. Like, you know, he just tops everyone immediately. Um, but as we're going to see as we make our way through this book over the next four weeks, this is actually not primarily a story about a guy and a fish. This is a story about God. God's God has actually mentioned his name three times more than the name of Jonah in this book. This is a story about God, and this is a story about God's uncomfortable amount of love. This is a story about God's love that is honestly meant to shock us. And if we're actually not shocked by it, then we are not understanding what he is saying. Because this is a story about God's love, not for good people, not for those who are nice, not for those who do kind things. No, this is a story about God's relentless love for evil people who rebel against Him. Both the rebellious people of Nineveh and the rebellious prophet Jonah. This is a story about God's gracious love. His undeserved love. I think Sinclair Ferguson captures it well when he says, writes this, it really is a book about how one man came through painful experience to discover the true character of, God, of the God whom he had already served in the earlier years of his life. He was to find the doctrine of the grace of God with which he had been long familiar come alive in his experience. I pray that through our study of this book, that would be what happens to us. That God's amazing grace, the relentlessness of His love for rebellious people would come alive in our experience. And that as it does, this book would have its intended effect upon our life. The book of Jonah is a prophetic book. Prophetic not meaning that it is predicting something in the future. That's how we usually think about prophecy. In the Bible, when it talks about prophecy, it talks about calling God's people to action. That's what it means to be a prophetic book. It's a, it's a call to action. And the book of Jonah is known as one of the 12 minor prophetic books in the Old Testament. Minor, not in that it's less important than the major ones, but it's just shorter 
This book doesn't seem to be prophetic, but it certainly is because it is going to call us to take action. As we see God's love displayed in incredible ways, the book of Jonah is going to ask us really two questions. One, do we believe God really loves us like this? It's going to call us to faith. Do we believe that God can really love us like this? And then two, will we be obedient and love others like we've been loved? It's going to ask us, do we believe that God loves us? And then it's going to call us, are we going to allow our lives to be shaped with such a supernatural kind of love? We've entitled this whole series, God's Relentless Love for Rebellious People. It's my prayer is that we'd feel God's love for us. And that we'd then allow God's love for us to shape our love for one another, our love for our city, our love for God's world. world. So let's turn our attention to God's word now. It may speak to us through it. I'm going to read the entire chapter of Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And he said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and a lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to them, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it's because of me that the great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish. Three days and three nights. May God bless the reading. Now the preaching of his word. All glory be to him.
Our story starts with God speaking to Jonah. That phrase, now the word of the Lord came, is the most frequently used phrase to open a prophetic book. God speaks and the prophet is then meant to respond, but that is not what happens here. The book of Jonah takes a very surprising turn because God speaks and Jonah runs. Why does he run? And what does that have to teach us about why we can run? And what does God do? And what does that have to teach us about who God is for us? These are the questions that we are going to explore as we look at things in this text. I want us to see three things as we make our way through the story to understand what God is saying. I want us to see, one, the compassionate call. Two, the rebellious response. And three, the saving storm. So first, the compassionate call. The compassionate call. God gives Jonah a call, a command. Go to Nineveh. Now who is Jonah? We are told in 2 Kings chapter 14 that Jonah was a prophet who lived in the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of King Jeroboam II. Israel was split up into two nations around 975 B.C. After the death of Solomon, there was a civil war that broke out. And it became the kingdom of Israel, which was the ten tribes of Israel to the north, and the kingdom of Judah, which was the two tribes down in the south. And that's where Jerusalem was down in the south. Jonah is up in the north. He's up in there and he's doing there. He's, he's a prophet there during the time of Jeroboam II. And this is how Jeroboam II is described in 2 Kings chapter 14. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he, that's the northern part of Israel, the kingdom of Israel. And he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, which he made Israel to sin. So King Jeroboam was an evil king, following in the footsteps of his father, Jeroboam I, who was an evil king. We read in the book of Kings that he led the people of Israel away from their belief in the one true God, Yahweh, and led them into worshiping false idols, led them into the way of pagans. And God sent the prophets Amos and Hosea, who also have books in the Bible, contemporaries of Jonah. He sent them to go and, and to call out and call the people of Israel to repent, to turn from their evil idolatry. That was their ministry. But that wasn't Jonah's ministry. Here's, here, here's what Jonah got to prophesy about in Israel during this time. We read this in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. Jeroboam restored the border of Israel from Labo Hemath as far as the Sea of Erebath, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai. Jonah gets to prophesy about prosperity. He says to King Jeroboam, your borders are going to be restored. And they were. And Jeroboam reigned for 41 years, which was pretty long reign back then. And so, like, as God's given out prophetic assignments, if I'm Amos and Hosea, I'm like, hey, what, like, what did we do wrong here? Like, we, you know, we have to tell people how bad things are and how they have to turn. Jonah gets the assignment. Let me tell you how great God, things are going to be. And that's what happens. Things are great. God wants his people to turn, but he's allowing his kindness to them to call them back to repentance to him. 
right? So you have the repentant prophets, Amos and Hosea, and then you have the prosperity prophet, Jonah. You guys talk all about God's kindness. Like, that's, that's the job I want. It's easy to be a prophet of prosperity. I, I, I just get the, the picture that, you know, Amos and Hosea, if you know anything about them, they were not welcomed. They were often ostracized. People don't like to be called to repentance. So they were not well treated in the kingdom of Israel. Jonah, he's prophesied about prosperity. He must have been living the cushy life. Like, like this is the one that you want hanging out in the, in the palace. Oh, you have good things to say? Here, come, hang out with me. He's a prophet of prosperity. And then he gets this word. Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. I just picture Jonah, again, getting really used to saying good things. He's sitting up in the palace, the buddy of the king, sipping on whatever the ancient equivalent is of a pina colada, right? And then this call comes. You know, it's like, you want me to do what? Drink goes everywhere, you know? This is the first time in the entire Old Testament, first time in history, that God had ever told a prophet of Israel to go talk to a pagan people. That just didn't happen back then. Back then there was Jew, Jew, the people God chose them to, be, to reveal himself to, the people of Israel. There was Jew and there was Gentile. There was Jew and there was everyone else, basically. And Jewish people did not associate with Gentile people. They were considered unclean. And so they wouldn't dare to go to a place like Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of the nation of Assyria. Assyria is the nation that was just north of Israel. It was a constant threat to Israel. The Ninevites were enemies. Not only were they enemies, but the Ninevites had a particular reputation for being brutal enemies. Listen to what one of their kings reports about his victory. I took their warriors prisoner and impaled them on stakes before their cities. I flayed the nobles and spread their skins out on the piles of dead corpses. Many of the captives I burned in a fire. Many I took alive. From some I cut off their hands to write. From others, I cut off their noses, ears, and fingers. I put out the eyes of many of the soldiers. I cut off their heads and made pyramids therein. I built a wall before the great gates of the city, and I flayed the chief men of the rebels, and I covered the walls with their skins. Some of them were enclosed alive in the bricks of the wall. Some were crucified on the stakes along the wall. I caused a great multitude of them to be flayed in my presence. And I cover the walls with their skins. That's the Ninevites. Bragging about their horrific actions. These are brutal people. And we read in verse 2 that God says their evil had come up before him. Which is an ancient way of saying that things had gotten so bad that now an intervention needs to Happens. So God sends Jonah and tells him to call out against them. He gives Jonah not a message of prosperity, but a message of God's coming judgment. Now, if I'm given a message of judgment, they have to go bring it against a city that's covered with the skins of their enemies. I might think twice about bringing that message. But here's what we have to understand about Jonah. Here's, here's what we have to understand about what's happening in the story. 
by God sending Jonah to give advance warning of his judgment against these evil people, God was giving these evil people the opportunity to repent and turn from their evil ways. If God wanted to just judge them and wipe them out, he would do it with no warning. We see this in Genesis chapter 19. You have the two evil cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. They get no warning. They just get wiped out. God says you're done, and they are done. But whenever in the Bible we read God giving a word of warning, we need to understand that happens in the context of his mercy. Because his word of warning is giving an opportunity for people to turn from the judgment that they would otherwise face. Commentator Douglas Stewart says it this way, Jonah would recognize, as would the hearers, readers of the story in ancient Israel, that to give advance warning of the imposition of sanctions was to open the door to the possibility of repentance. God gives a warning so that they can change their actions. God warns because God wants to save. His warning is not some kind of harsh power move, but an act of tremendous love and mercy. This is a compassionate call that God is giving to Jonah. He's telling Jonah that as bad as these Ninevites are, there is no one too far gone that God is unwilling to rescue. He wants to warn the Ninevites because he has chosen to love the Ninevites and he wants to save them. And friends, here's the point for us. If that's true for them, how much more can that also be true for us? I think it's very easy for us sometimes to doubt the love of God. We can feel like we have messed up too much. Like, okay, God, I know that you're a God of love. Like, we understand it conceptually, but then we think that we've just done too much to actually come back into that love. Like, we've done too much. Too much time has gone. Too many things have happened. Like, God must, he must actually be done with us. I know you can forgive me once, maybe twice, but now I've really blown it. Can't we just feel, God, you must be so tired of me and my stuff. I'm tired of me and my stuff. You must be so tired of me and my stuff. We can feel like we exhaust his compassions. And yet what we're seeing here through this call is that if God can have compassion for people like Nineveh, who skinned people alive. Friends, God can have compassion for you. What, what, what this is telling us right here at the start of our story is that there is no one who is too far gone for God to reach. You are not too far gone, friend. You are not too far gone. You have not done too much. You are not beyond the reach of God's mercy. He has compassion for you. And he wants us to turn to him again and again and again. This is our God. He's a compassionate God who gives this compassionate call. But Jonah has a rebellious response to this call, which takes us to our second point, the rebellious response. Jonah, God, God tells Jonah, rise and go to Nineveh. In verse 3, Jonah arises and he goes to Tarshish. And I think we have a map if we could get up on this. So I'm on a map to see what's going on. So, so, so there's Nineveh. Jonah was like around Joppa. So Nineveh is that way. Where, where's Tarshish? It's, it's basically, he went to not Nineveh. He, he, he went the exact opposite way. 
He, he went to get as far away from what God had asked him to do as he possibly could. Because he's not scared of going to this place. No, no, no that's, that's not what's happening here. Why does he flee? We're going to see this even more clearly in chapter 4. But a little spoiler alert, he flees because he does know that God is showing compassion and he wants no parts of that. He wants no parts of God being kind to those people. Now think about this. Jonah had no problem talking to his king, who God calls evil, about how God's going to be merciful to him and God's going to bring about this prosperity to him. He was fine with God's compassion for his own, but he didn't want to show it to those people. He was well acquainted with the theology of God's mercy and compassion. But that theology did not inform his life. Jonah was more than happy to go to whatever the ancient equivalent was of a Bible study or a community group and to talk theoretically about God's love. But he did not want to go to people he did not like and actually show God's love. And as we read this, from our perspective, living so far away, I think it for, you know, in terms of history, I think it'd be easy for us to be like, what's wrong with Jonah, man? Like, just, you know, go show, how could you not love people like this, right? Like, how, how could you be so, so hard-hearted? But think about your life for just a moment. Who has hurt you? Why don't you think about that for a second? Who's hurt you? Who has wronged you? Who, who has done evil against you. How do you feel about them? How do you feel about God wanting to have compassion on them? I know I can feel. I want them to get theirs. I had a friend who, about 15 years ago, was very close to me and really betrayed me in a pretty significant way, slandered me, said false things about me for a variety of reasons, left and got involved in some ministry work. I wanted him to fail in it. I wanted him to fall flat in his face. That's where my heart was. How do, how, it's easy to talk about being loving towards others except when those others are very unloving towards us. That can be a different story, can't it? It's not hard to see, actually. I don't think it's very hard at all to see why Jonah ran. Because I know that I can have a propensity sometimes to run for obedience to what God calls me to do. Jonah rebels against God's compassionate call, and he, he goes down to Joppa, and he conveniently finds a boat going in the opposite way. Of course there's a boat going in the opposite way. Because anytime we want to run from God, there will always be a boat waiting to take us away from Him. Friends, this is why it's really bad to kind of interpret life as what doors is God opening? Oh, God's opening this door. This, this must be where I want to go. Um, maybe not. It might actually be a trap. Easy is not always good. William Banks, a commentator, says it this way. When a person decides to run from the Lord, Satan always provides complete transportation facilities. 
It is easy to not follow God. Let's just be clear on that. What are the boats that are waiting to take you away? We want to read the Bible. But we've got this smartphone that just keeps giving us all these notifications. We'd love to be more involved in church community, but my job is just so demanding. Only things with roots grow, but I can't put roots down. I need to travel. I need to get all these experiences. That's the good life. We become so busy that our spiritual life just withers. Kids are getting older, and I have to get them involved in this and that activity and all these things going on, chasing the American dream for them, but forgetting that God's word says, was it matter if they gain the whole world but lose their soul? I'll spend more time serving the Lord once I get this promotion or once I get this next degree or once I, and we keep putting off for another day what God wants us to do today. Friends, listen, for every step of obedience that God calls us into, there will always be an easy way to say no. Always. Jonah goes down to Joppa and gets on a boat going the opposite way. And Joppa was a strategic choice. Again, Jonah's up in the northern part of Israel, so he would have traveled several days to get down to Joppa. There were ports that were closer to his home. Why does he go to Joppa? Because Joppa was not a Jewish port. It was run by Gentiles. In other words, it was run by people who didn't know Jonah. And so Richard Phillips says it this way, Jonah chose a port where there would be no troublesome inquiries. He didn't want anyone asking him some hard questions. He didn't want anyone getting up in his business. He knew that what he was doing was wrong. And so he not only fled from God, he fled from the community of God's people. Listen, friends, nothing good happens to us when we isolate ourselves. There is safety in being known. Again, to quote from Richard Phillips, he says, one of God's remedies against sin deceit is Christian fellowship. Instead of going to Joppa, Jonah should have gone to the meeting place of the other prophets. He should have explained how he felt about God's command and likely their help would have changed his mind. In the worship uh, at church, our minds are reminded about the realities of heaven and hell, about the justice of God's economy, and about the grace for sinners like us who have been saved. See, friends, we need other people in our lives in order to say yes to God. Part of why we need to come together consistently for Sunday worship, part of why we do uh, our community groups where we can get together in smaller groups and talk about life, part of why we have Bible studies for men and women where we can get into God's Word and apply God's Word to our hearts, part of why we do this is so that we might be known, that we might be in fellowship with one another, so that in our struggles we can be encouraged by the church community, keep listening to God, keep following God, keep obeying God. His way is life. But Jonah flees community and gets on a bloat to, to flee obedience to God. And you notice, he's not troubled by his choices at all. Like God sends a big storm, and what's Jonah doing while the storm is raging? We're told in verse 5, that he had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. The Hebrew word for sleep that's being used here is a very, very deep sleep. Jonah's fast asleep. And he must have been fast asleep in order to sleep through a storm. God's sending a storm 
to get his attention. And such is the hardness of Jonah's heart that he is fast asleep. Listen, when your mind is troubled and your heart is heavy, you know what you can't have? You can't have sleep. You toss and turn all night when you're worried about things. Jonah doesn't have a care in the world. He's fleeing the presence of God and his soul is not troubled. He's able to be at peace, at peace enough to fall into a fast sleep. Listen, friends, sin often comes into our life not like a knife thrust, but more like radiation poisoning. What I, what I mean by that is if you get stuck with a knife, I don't know if you ever got cut before, what happens? You immediately take your hand out and you're like, oh, it hurts. And you, you put something on to stop the bleeding. But that's not how our sin usually happens to us. It doesn't usually come with a big shocking thing that we immediately respond to. It usually creeps into our life subtly in ways that we can't detect. And that way it's, it's like radiation poisoning. You can't feel it. You can't even see it. But once it gets into you, it'll get to work on you. And then when you start seeing symptoms, it's already too late. You're soon close to death. Listen, friend. If you are living in sin and thinking that you're getting away with it, that's the worst kind of place to be. If you're sinning and your soul is not troubled and you're not tossing and turning at night, be concerned. My prayer for you is that tonight you would not be able to sleep. That you'd feel troubled. You might turn, might turn to God. Jonah's fast asleep because he has a hard heart. He eventually gets woken up. But as he gets woken up, he knows he still has a hard heart. The storm is raging, and he knows why it's happening. Because he says it later, but you notice he doesn't say it right away. Like the sailors have to cast lots to find out whose fault it is. Because Jonah isn't confessing. Casting lots was like an ancient way of basically like drawing straws, right? They all have to draw straws, and it's not until Jonah gets the short straw that they realize, oh, it's his fault. And they say, tell us what's going on. And here's what he says, which I think is almost comical if it wasn't so sad. He says in verse 9, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. Does he have any fear of God in his life? Not at all. Again, he has his theology right. Oh, he knows what it means to fear the Lord, but his theology is not impacting his life. Fear doesn't mean to be scared. Fear means to serve with reverence. Jonah isn't serving God or reverencing him one bit. He goes on to say, yeah, I, I, I fear the Lord, the God of the sea and dry land. Now, when I hear that, I put myself in the sailor's position. Like, wait, time out. You serve the God of the sea and the land. And you're trying to flee him on a boat? Like, like I'm, not surp I'm surprised they didn't just throw him off like right then at that moment. Like, like, how many levels of dumb do you have to be to be Jonah? But that's what sin does. Sin makes us stupid. It does. Sin makes us stupid. If we didn't think that we'd get away with it, we wouldn't do it. Every sin we commit is the belief that either God doesn't see what's happening or he doesn't care about it, which is stupidity. But we still do it. Now they ask him what's going on, and eventually he tells them, and he says, all right, so here's what you have to do. You have to throw me overboard, which is another sign of his hard-heartedness. Jonah was not expecting that would stop the storm, because God says in his law, which Jonah would have known as a prophet, that he abhors human sacrifices. 
God never would have asked Jonah to sacrifice himself in such a way. That's against the word of God. That's against God's law. God never wants people to kill themselves to please him. That's not who God is. And so Jonah's just making this up. He's just pulling it out of the air. He doesn't care at all. He actually knows that God's law says to take another's life means that your life deserves to be taken. And so this is how much he hates these people. He's saying, hey, kill me, knowing that that could mean that God will then have to kill them. What he should have said is, I've sinned. Can we please go back to Joppa because I need to get on a camel and hop up to Nineveh. That's, that's what he should have done. He should have repented. Jonah does not want to repent. And we're going to see in chapter 4, this is not the last time that Jonah is willing to die for his sin. Pastor James Boyce, the late James Boyce, said this way, Jonah would be damned literally before he'd see God's blessing shed on his enemies. He'd rather die than have to go to Nineveh and do what God told him to do. William Banks says it this way, Jonah was willing to perish rather than to preach. Now the sailors are better men than Jonah, and so they don't immediately try to kill him. They try to row back. But things keep getting worse. And so they're like, well, he's a prophet, so I guess he must know what his God wants, so we'll throw him overboard. And they do it asking for God to have mercy on them. See, they, they believe more in God's mercy than even Jonah does. Jonah gets thrown into the sea and immediately see he does get calm and the sailors are saved. But here's what's really amazing with that story. Jonah also gets saved. That should shock us, friends. It should shock us that this story is not over in verse 16. Hey, great start. Short book, 16 verses. Jonah gets thrown into the sea and judged. Done. Jonah was willing to die rather than be obedient. And so all he deserved from God was for God to let him die. But just because Jonah was ready to end it, God was not ready to end it. And so the story goes on with the mercy of God take, picking up in verse 17. Jonah had tried to take his life, but God wanted to save his life. And so verse 17 says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Which takes us to our final point. And we see that the, the point of the storm was not to be to bring judgment on Jonah. The point of the storm was sent by God to save Jonah. And so let's look at the saving storm. Let's look at the saving storm. Jonah throws himself in the sea, thinking that he is ending things. God sends a big fish to save him. Now, now there's some questions that can come at this point. Like, is this really possible? Like, hearing that big fish swallows Jonah, that certainly stretches belief. There's actually a whole school of thought that thinks that this story of the uh, book of Jonah is actually made up. It's an allegory. It's just a story that's meant to, to make a point. Uh, but here's what we have to understand. When it comes to interpreting the Bible, we need to have a very clear theological method for answering questions of biblical interpretation. Right? We do have to answer questions of biblical interpretation. But how we do it should be informed by a clear theology of how we should interpret the Bible. And so if this is God's word of revelation, it's a theological point. The Bible is the revealed word of God. It's his revelation. If the Bible is God's revealed word of revelation, what's the best way to interpret the revelation of God? Would it not be with other revelation from God? In other words, the best way to interpret Scripture is with Scripture. The most faithful way to interpret Scripture is with Scripture. And so the question we should be asking when we're trying to discern 
is the story an allegory or is this something that actually happened, is, well, is the story of Jonah mentioned anywhere else in the Bible? That's the first question we should ask. And, and the answer you'll find is yes. Jesus talked about it several times. Most of the, of the Gospels actually record it. They all say the same thing. Let me read to you from Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Jesus is teaching about how he's going to die and then rise again, and this is what he says. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus takes the miracle that God did in saving Jonah through a big fish and say, hey, that's going to be the same thing that God's going to do with me in the miracle of my resurrection. In other words, Jesus is saying that the real historical event of my death and resurrection, he died and on the third day was raised, that that real event is just as real as what happened to Jonah. Like, it would be nonsensical for Jesus to say that, hey, just as the reality of my resurrection, that's just as real as this fictional, made-up thing. That would be me, like, saying, like, hey, you know, it's just as real that I was born in Media, Pennsylvania, that the Easter bunny lays Easter eggs and hides them. You're like, wait a second, time out. What? Like, like what are you trying to say? You're like, you know, like, first of all, I don't even know how the whole Easter bunny, like, laying egg and hide, like, how did that even become a thing? Like, what marketing person is like, I know what we'll do. We'll, we'll try to, we'll try to, we'll have eggs that people can find. Like, why are we trying to find eggs? Don't worry, a bunny lays them. Like, like, what on earth? Like, where did that come from? But, right, like, I wouldn't use a fictional story to prove a historical fact. If I'm trying to tell you something that really happened to me, I would say something like, just as surely as the Eagles won the 2018 Super Bowl, so too I was, right? I'd, something actually happened. And pretty soon I'm going to be saying, just as sure as they won the 2023 Super Bowl, um, you knew you weren't going through a whole Sunday without some kind of reference there. Um, we don't use a fiction, you don't use a fictional story to prove a historical fact. And so I think Jesus very clearly believed that the story of Jonah actually happened. That God really did save Jonah. And that was just as real as through Jesus, God is going to save us. And so if you want, you can spend a whole afternoon Googling, can a person really survive in a large fish and You'll find answers all kinds, you know, all over the place on that. But honestly, let me save you a little bit of time. None of that should matter for followers of Jesus. If we believe that Jesus is God, that Jesus proved that he is God by raising, by rising from the dead, then, then I think as followers of Jesus, we should interpret the Bible the same way that he interprets the Bible. And so what we're reading here in Jonah 1, I want to read it through the eyes of Jesus, which is that this is something that really happened. And so, yeah, it's hard to believe how a large fish could swallow Jesus, could, could, could swallow someone and save one. But honestly, that's not even close to the craziest thing that's happened in the Bible that God's done. And so, if we have a hard time believing that, well, you're going to have a hard time believing a whole mess of other things. And so, I think the most faithful way to interpret this is, as Jesus does, something that truly, truly happens, which, which shows us that God sent, again, he sent the storm not to destroy Jonah, but to save Jonah. Because sometimes it takes a storm to redirect us from the path of destruction that we're on. Now, I want to be careful here. Because I do not want us to leave here thinking that we should interpret every storm in life that we face in life, every hard thing we go through, as somehow God's trying to redirect us. So, so, somehow we're, we're sinning and, and God wants to get our attention and move us in a different direction. I, I don't think we should interpret all of life that way. Sometimes bad things happen just because we live in a world that's under a curse. And it's just part of the collateral damage of being in this place. 
And so I think about John chapter 9, when Jesus heals a man who had been born blind, and he gets asked, what did this man do wrong that he was born in such a way? Jesus' answer is nothing. Nothing. Not every bad thing that happens to us, not every storm comes because we're on the wrong track and God wants to direct us. Let's be clear on that. But let's also be clear on this too. Some storms can be God trying to redirect us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul tells that that church that the reason some of them are sick is because they are sinning and God's trying to get their attention. Apparently the same thing happened in to, to, to David when he was living in the unconfessed sin of his adultery against, uh, with, with Bathsheba, he says in Psalm 32 that his bones had been wasting away. He was experiencing some kind of physical ailment. James chapter 5 says the exact same thing about unconfessed sin. Listen, friends, when we are running away from God, the most loving thing for God to do for us is what? Is to not let us. Is to get our attention. Sometimes our hands are holding so tightly onto things that are dangerous to us and that are going to kill us that God sends a storm to loosen our hold so we might turn to Him. Not every storm, but some storms are meant to redirect us. I've experienced this personally in my own life. Early in my marriage, I'd fallen into some patterns of, in many ways, being very selfish and arrogant and unkind, entitled. Uh, And after one particular episode where my wife and I had a conflict, again, because I was being entitled and unkind, my Crohn's disease flared up, and I ended up in the hospital. And I was lying there in the gurney. God made very clear to me that this was his rescue of me. The pain was meant to get my attention and keep me from the even greater pain of blowing up my marriage. Now, I've had many Crohn's flares in the past 30 years of me dealing with it. I've had over a dozen surgeries. Most of them, I think, have nothing to do with my sin. But that time I knew. God had sent a storm. Not to hurt me, but to heal me. Not to be unkind to me, but to save me. Not to judge me, but to rescue me. And friends... Maybe God's going to send some storms in your life too. And here's what happens. When we go through those things, here's what happened to me when I was in that that place. We can trust that God's hands are never meant to hurt, but always meant to heal. We can trust that God will use even a storm to lovingly rescue us because he's the God who himself went into the ultimate storm to save us. Jesus did say, that Jonah is a picture of him. And there's a greater salvation that's been experienced that the story of Jonah is meant to point us to. See, Jonah threw himself into the storming sea because he didn't care about anyone but himself. But Jesus came and he threw himself into the storm of God's judgment for our sin and died on the cross for us because he does care about us and does love us. Jonah wasn't willing to go and preach about God's compassion. Jesus came and he embodied God's compassion. The sailors threw Jonah overboard, hoping his death would save them. Jesus went to that hill called Calvary. And he died so that his death could save us. And we can know that his death 
does save us, that it is enough to pay for our debt of death, because just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and then was spit out on dry land, so too Jesus was in the belly of the earth. He was dead. He was in that grave for three days. But then early on, Easter morning, the grave spit him out to life. God had salvation waiting for Jonah and the storm, friends, there is salvation always waiting for us in Jesus Christ. And so here's really, I think, the big idea of this chapter. Here's, here's what I think God is saying to us through this text that I hope we remember this afternoon and tomorrow morning and Thursday night, whenever we need it. Here's, here's what I hope we remember. When temptation comes to run from God, remember the love of God and live for Him. Friends, this week, in the next two hours, when the temptation comes for you to run from God, to not listen to God, to not do what He wants, to not be obedient to Him, when temptation comes for you to run from God, remember the love of God and live for Him. We can all be tempted to run from God. Not necessarily by turning our backs completely. Maybe it's running even in a way that no one else notices but I know every day because I know myself every day we wake up as a day where there are temptations waiting for us where there are boats with their sails full wait ready to take up anchor and put us on it and take us away from the Lord friends may it not take a storm to remind us that it is always better to follow God may it not take a storm to remind us that there is salvation and love waiting for us in God. When we are tempted, friends, let's remember that the God who asks us to follow Him with everything in our lives is the God who came and laid down His life for us to show us how much He loves us and how much He is for us and how His way is truly best. And so when the temptation comes for us to run from God, friends, remember the love of God that we've seen here in Jonah chapter 1. The love of God that's meant to point us to Jesus. Remember the love of God and choose instead to live for Him. Let's bow our heads in prayer.